Would you find it unusual to see a car on the side of a street with four parking tickets on its windshield, and yet there was a driver behind the wheel? And upon further investigation, would you think it's strange to discover that the driver behind the wheel has been dead for three days, yet police officers had continued to ticket the vehicle? <laughs> That's exactly what happened back on November the 12th. Jacob Morfio of Miami had parked his SUV near the Broward County Courthouse. Nobody knows exactly the timing of what happened next, but it wasn't until November the 15th when he was found slumped over his steering wheel, a credit card gripped in his hand, and he was dead. On the windshield were, of the four tickets, two of them had been put there within three minutes of each other. One of the last of the four tickets had been put there just six hours <clears throat> before it was discovered that he had died. So how is it possible that several city parking officers missed the reality of that situation? But maybe the more important question and it's a personal question. Why is it that we have eyes and yet there are times when we just don't see and therefore our behavior is inappropriate? As we come to the end of our Dream Again sermon series, there is one last element that we need to put into place. In fact, without this important concept that we are going to be looking at today from Ezekiel chapter 37 and have it at the very foundation of all of our dreaming and all of our imagineering, literally nothing of eternal value is going to take place. So let's back up a moment this morning and let's take a running start and just kind of remind ourselves of where we've been. We started on the very first Sunday in this series to, by identifying that there's one aspect of the Holy Spirit's ministry to us and that is he wants to help us dream, he wants us to have vision. And by his power, the Holy Spirit wants to spark our imaginations so that the eyes of our, our hearts are opened to see and believe the wonderful things that God has yet in mind for his church. And so we were challenged on that very first Sunday by Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20. Our God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or imagine. And we wrestled with that concept. We can't outdream God. It is not possible for our imaginations and wonderings about the question, what if, to go beyond God's ability to accomplish. Amazing. And then what we did is we took a Sunday and looked at three different snapshots of the early church. Each of these churches was in widely diverse settings from each other, and yet each one of them had flourishing ministries. Each of them was forward-thinking. Each of them was outward-focused. So remember, we looked at the church of Jerusalem and how they had as its pri their priorities to learn the Word of God and to love the people of God. Then we looked at the church at Antioch, 
A church that was building both deep and wide. And yet that depth and that breadth was occurring in the midst of some incredible personal pain. And then the third snapshot was the church at Colossae. And their reputation of faith and hope and love was grounded in the fact that they were daily being changed by the gospel. And as I mentioned to you several times, each one of those three snapshots was not given to us to satisfy our curiosity, but rather to spark our imaginations to believe audaciously that what God did back there and then, He wants to do here and now. And yet everything that we've been looking at in the Scriptures about dreaming, about having vision, will lack divine unction without coming to grips with this last final element. And that key element is found in the section of Scripture that Dave wrote just a few moments ago. And it's this passage of Scripture that's quite puzzling. In fact, it's a whole book of the Bible that tends to be quite puzzling. And so therefore, we kind of rather don't traffic there very often. But this morning, let's go there. So grab your Bibles, open your devices, if you would, to Ezekiel chapter 37. Now as you open there, I realize most of you know and probably perceive that this section of Scripture is often dismissed as just a great Sunday school story and has a cute song that goes with it. Sorry folks, we are not going to sing that this morning. Or that passage of Scripture we're going to look at is often used by fanatics of eschatology as proof of their view of the last things, which means I'm probably going to disappoint some of you this morning because we are not going to look at the eschatological significance of the passage. Rather, what's often overlooked, like a dead man in a parked car, are the simple, straightforward facts of how this passage of Scripture can help us dream again. Chapter 37 of Ezekiel, verse 1 to verse 14, describes the vision that the Lord God gave to Ezekiel. Watch how in these opening verses, how a God-given vision engages us. Look at verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones, and he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. Now, do you notice Ezekiel is describing this vision as if it had literally happened? Notice the descriptions. He, the Lord, brought me out. He set me down. He led me around. In other words, what Ezekiel saw and the conversations that he had with the Lord was vivid and connected to reality. Likewise, a God-given vision is intended to engage us. It's first of all intending to engage us as we are led to have a person, or imagine, a personal experience with it. Again, just like with Ezekiel, the vision 
of God puts us in the middle of a specific setting. It's the same way. All of our senses will often get involved with a dream that we have, a normal dream that we'll have in the middle of the night. And if that dream is unnerving, oftentimes it wakes us up with a cold sweat and our heart is just about ready to pound out of our chests. Why? Because the dream was so real. It was as if we had literally, personally experienced it. When God's Spirit brings a vision, it leads us to have that same kind of personal experience. And the vision experience is intended to do two things. Look at the text. First of all, our eyes are opened to a need. Again, in verse 1 and verse 2, the descriptive details are important. It was a valley full of bones. In other words, something tragic, something horrific has happened here. This valley full of dead bones, notice in verse 2, there's the repetition of the word very. There, that word very describes the quantity and quality of the bones. There were very many of them, and they were very dry. Now, I realize that many of you hunt here in Minnesota, and you understand this imagery of, of dry bones real easily because you've been out in the woods and you have come across bones from an animal that has long ago since died. You, you, you know these bones, they've got that white, bleached, dry look to being out in the elements for a long time. That's what Ezekiel is seeing. But don't miss, Ezekiel is in a place where there have been mass killings. The emotions of seeing what he saw, of being in that valley, seeing all those bones would have been almost overwhelming to him. This is the Old Testament equivalent of killing fields, only nobody got buried in a mass grave. Their bodies were just left on the land to rot. The sense of grief, the sense of sadness, literally would have been devastating to Ezekiel. You see, a God-given vision does this kind of thing even in our day. It opens our eyes to a, to a desperate need. We're, we're, we're personally able to experience the brokenness of our world, and that brokenness is oftentimes associated in a tragic way with something that has died or is dying, and it impacts us. But that's not where our experience with the vision stops. Notice how the text continues. The Lord takes Ezekiel and he takes us a step further to not only are our eyes open to a need, but our hearts are challenged to believe. Look at how verse 3 starts. And so the Lord God said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? What would have been your reaction had you been in Ezekiel's place? How, how would you have answered the Lord? Uh, I mean, as far, remember, put yourself there. As far as you can see, where you are 
is just a place full of of scattered, dried-up bones. In the midst of all this death, God's asking, is life possible? How did Ezekiel answer? Look at verse 3. And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Does anybody else here feel like his answer is a little guarded? That he really didn't directly answer the question? Uh, What he didn't say, but what I suspect after studying this passage this week, is I suspect that on the inside he's thinking, it would take a miracle. (laughs) But the point of God's question is he's raising a challenge to Ezekiel's faith. Likewise, when a God-given vision comes, it is to open our eyes to see a need, and then our faith is going to get challenged. Can what is dead be brought back to life? Is resurrection possible in our day right here, right now? See, this is all part of how God wants to personally engage us. When he brings a vision, he intends for us to have a personal experience by our eyes being open to a need and by our hearts being challenged to believe. It's supposed to be The vision is supposed to be personally compelling and challenging and unnerving all at the same time. But a God-given vision does more than just give us a personal experience. Look at verse 4. We're also asked to imagine a personal involvement. God is going to invite us in his vision to become imagineers. He wants us to let him spark our imaginations to get involved. In like manner with Ezekiel, notice in verse 4, each of us is going to have a unique role to play. So the God, verse 4, then said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live. And you shall know that I am the Lord. Now, Ezekiel was a prophet. Prophets prophesy. Now, when you hear that word prophesy, here in the te- or read it here in the text, it's not so much forth-telling in the sense of uh, what's going to happen in the future, though some prophecies do that, but most of the time prophecies are telling forth, meaning they are proclaiming the Word of God to an audience. This was the role Ezekiel was, was being asked to play in the vision. Declare the word of what God was going to do over these dry bones. And folks, that took faith. I mean, who wouldn't wonder if we had been in that situation 
if we said these things that we'd heard from God and proclaimed them, what if nothing happened? And yet Ezekiel had faith to believe that the word of God was living and active and had the power to bring life back to that which was dead. So you may not have the gift of prophecy, but you do have a spiritual gift. And there is a place for you to use that gift in a God-given vision by faith to address the need that your eyes have been opened to see. You see, a God-given vision is compelling because it's going to draw us in to get involved with it. But that doesn't mean it's going to happen automatically. Look at the text. Look at how verse 7 starts. Each of us, we have the choice to obey here. So with Ezekiel, he said in verse 7, So I prophesied as I was commanded. Hmm. Will I take the gifts that I have been given and in obedience to do what the Lord is asking through this vision that he gives? Will I be willing to invest my time, to invest my my energies, to invest my talents, even to invest my financial situations or my financial resources in a situation that looks like everything has died? Or am I going to think on the inside, you know, my involvement is going to be worthless. I mean, it's not going to change anything. It'd be a waste to invest anything here because it's all dead. Or, like Ezekiel, will I do what the Lord asks of me and I leave the results to him? What happened for Ezekiel? Well, look at the halfway through verse 7. And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling as the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied. As he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Now, notice something. Look at the contrast of verse 2 with the end of verse 10. Verse 2, there were very many bones and very dry bones. Now in verse 10, we've got this standing, exceedingly great army. And by the way, there's a play of words going on here. In the Hebrew language, as we see in the Old Testament, there is one word that describes or is used to, that translates wind, breath, and spirit of God. All three of those are described by one Hebrew word, and that's what's going on here in the passage. In other words, life comes back into dead things only when the Spirit of God enters. 
Okay, let's just hit the pause button for a moment. And let's consider how all this applies to us as a church. A new God-given vision for Lakewood will engage us. It will engage us by opening our eyes in a fresh way to our need and to the needs in our community. And that need or those needs, it may be painful to see for it might be the tragic realization something's died or something is dying. And yet with that God-given vision will also be an invitation to get our hands dirty, to get involved, to personally invest out of the belief that God's supernatural power, again, remember Ephesians 3.20, he is able to do abundantly beyond all that we could ask or imagine, that God's supernatural power can resurrect the dead and bring life. There's the key element that I mentioned that we need to wrestle with and get grounded at the foundation of all of our dreaming or, or visioning. Here, here it is. Nothing is impossible for our God can bring the dead back to life. Do we believe that? Do we rejoice in that? Do we have hope in that? Now to make sure Ezekiel and, and us as well fully grasp the significance of that truth, the Lord now interprets the vision and points out how a God-given vision changes us. Look at the start of verse 11. Then the Lord God said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Notice, this vision is about the whole house of Israel. In other words, this vision is about corporate resurrection. This vision speaks to God's power bringing life back to a group, to a crowd of people, to a collection of individuals. Now, a, a God-given vision like this is not naive. It's not ignorant. It's not dismissing the problems that are around it. No, rather, it pointedly addresses human despair. Look at verse 11. Look at how this human despair is, is described. Behold, this, the house of Israel says, Our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Our bones are dried up. Ezekiel is speaking to Israel that has been deported. They have been exiled from their land. They are living with a vivid awareness that something has died. Their corporate identity, it's gone. They're living as exiles, strangers in a foreign land. Their nation has been conquered, Jerusalem has been sacked, and their temple has been torn down and burned. They are experiencing deep, deep loss. Life is never going to be the same again for them. Do you sense the human despair? 
A future God-given vision for Lakewood needs to address how so many people in this church and in our community are living with this same sense of death. Something precious to them has died. The loss is real. The loss is raw. They don't see any prospect of life returning. See, that's part of the human despair we're living with in our culture right now. But there's a second quality to that human despair. Notice they say our hope is lost. Israel had a lack of hope. They did not look to the future with any kind of positive expectancy, but rather their future, it was scary, it was unnerving, and it was leaving them insecure and very fearful. Which means a future God-given vision for Lakewood is going to need to address this lack of hope that's in our culture and in our society. It needs to address how can a person wake up in the morning and look forward to what they're going to experience that day. See, to have hope allows a person to live for more than themselves. To have hope allows a person to live for more than just the immediate. There's a third quality to the human despair. We are indeed cut off. Israel felt relational estrangement. And it was on several levels. One level, they felt deeply that something was broken between themselves and God. On another level, they realized they lacked unity with other Jews. I mean, they'd been living with that for hundreds of years as they had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And even in exile, they were scattered all across the Babylonian Empire, so they didn't have a sense of community. There was relational estrangement all over the place. Which means a future God-given vision for Lakewood needs to address relational estrangement. Marriages that are broken, families that are splintered, people feeling far from the Lord because of their foolish choices, Friends who aren't speaking to each other because of their difference of opinion, maybe over things that happened here at Lakewood years ago, there is a feeling and a sense, a deep sense, that there isn't a sincere unity. God-given vision does not overlook human despair, but rather it immerses itself right in the middle messiness of it all. But then it does one thing more. It promises corporate resurrection. Look at verse 12. Therefore, Ezekiel, prophesy and say to them, the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. Notice, first of all, what's being promised. People will be brought back from the dead. Over and over again right there, God says, I'm going to open your graves and I am going to raise you up. They are going to experience God's resurrection power. 
that which looks and feels so dead to us is literally going to be brought back to life. And this is the promise that God continues to make to us, even in our day. Jesus himself in John chapter 5 says this, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Folks, corporately, we as a church, we need this promise. We have had our share of pain and disappointment and heartache in recent years. Yet the Lord our God wants to open up our graves, that which binds us and raises up. That's the first promise. But look at the second promise, which actually explains how the first one can even happen. Start of verse 14. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. Verse 14, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. Could that be a reference back to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7 that what God did initially at creation, he made Adam's body, but Adam didn't come alive until God breathed on him. Could this be a reference also to what God was go- is going to do, at least from Ezekiel's point of view, in the establishing of the new covenant? If you're here in Ezekiel 37, just look at ver- uh, chapter 36, starting at verse 26. Here is a statement of the new covenant. Ezekiel 36, 26, And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Boy, and that promise is still ours. Just think of of what Romans chapter 8 and verse 11 tells us. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. See that? He's going to give life to our mortal bodies. How? By the spirit indwelling in us. God-given vision changes us by bringing back to life what was dead, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Third promise, a restored relationship with God will occur. Look at the end of verse 14. And I will place you in your own land, and then you shall know that I am the Lord. See, the ultimate goal of this vision and the work of resurrection is for people to have a restored relationship with the God of heaven. 
And the greatest need that any of us have is not only to initially come to know him, but then every day after that to get to know him better. And again, this is the promise we have even in the New Testament. Jesus, John chapter 17, verse 3, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Which means every single one of us was made, we were hardwired to live in a personal relationship with the God who made us. And, but the reality is we can't do anything to make that happen. But the God of resurrection power through the sacrificial death of his son has forgiven us our sins and then reconciled us to himself. And look at the power and the assurance that this is going to happen. Look at the very end now of verse 14. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. Writer and theologian N.T. Wright has said, we are not to be surprised if living as Christians brings us to a place where we find we are at the end of our own resources and that we are called to rely upon the God who raises the dead. Boy, we should have hope in resurrection. So can we? Should we dream again as a church? Oh, absolutely. But let's ask the Lord to give us a God-sized vision for our future. And may we ask it be grounded in His resurrection power that can even bring back to life dead bones. Let's pray. Father, our prayer, we want it to be right in line with the scriptures this morning. And so, Father, our prayer is that you would do what is necessary to open our eyes. Open our eyes to see the need that is in us, to see the need that surrounds us in this community. And Father, open our eyes to see, each of us individually, our place to get involved and to serve. Father, I pray that you would bring us life by the power of your Spirit indwelling in us and among us. Father, would you raise us up in hope from the dead things that surround us and hold us back? Only you can do that. And Father, may our confidence in all this occurring be in the fact that you have spoken and you will do it. So Father, may that spark all kinds of things inside of us to believe, to dream, to imagine because we have a God who can do so far more abundantly beyond all we can ask. Or imagine. So it is to you that we pray that you would get the glory in all this as we, your people, follow you. We pray this in your wonderful name. Amen.